0: Love, love the words of that song where it says, we declare his victory, not our victory, his victory, because it's about him. It's about him. He allows us those victories in our lives. Well, the kids are dismissed. Grayson is dismissed. <laughs> And we're going to be in Daniel 4, and you'll be happy to know that um, I will be going through like whole chapters here the next few weeks. Uh, I won't be stopping like in five verses. Uh, so we'll start uh, going through the book of Daniel pretty quickly here. But let's review where we're at in the story of Daniel real quick. And I promise I'll be quick. Nebuchadnezzar is, you know, has conquered the whole world. He's beaten the Assyrian-Egyptian coalition and establishing the, the Babylonian Empire. And a tiny nation of Judah is, is assembling into the empire. And when he's doing that, he takes all the young princesses of Judah and they take them to Babylon in friendly captivity. They're treated well, but they had no choice in the matter. So for three years, they're trained in administration and all these areas of education. And four Jewish young men are looked upon in favor by the king. This is not the case for everyone, but these four, he just takes a liking to because Nebuchadnezzar can be a brutal guy. I mean, just go to 2 Kings 5 if you've got time this week and, and read about Zedekiah. He was captured. And then his son, or all his sons, were executed right in front of him. And then his eyes were poked out. So his last vision would be his sons dying. That's the type of king that they're dealing with. So don't, don't get mixed up that, that, you know, Nebuchadnezzar is a great guy. Now, in the end, I'm getting ahead a couple of weeks. In the end, we, we feel that he's a believer. But right now, don't think that he is. So this, key, you know, is the king of Babylon. But God has given these guys favor in his eyes from this brutal, fickle king. And they rise to the top pretty fast. And it causes some jealousy between the other leaders, and we saw the result of that last week where, where they ran to the king and tattled on, on these three guys because they didn't bow down to an idol. All of a sudden, the, the strong of the group isn't there. We don't know Daniel, where Daniel was in the middle of that story, but it's Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And <clears throat> they have to decide what to do. And they choose the right way pretty quickly. And it kind of reminds us, for those young people, kind of reminds us, for the young person, what do you do when mom and dad's not away, are not here, when they're away? What do you do when the boss is out of town? What do you do when the wife or a husband is away? Or what do you do when you go on that trip? It's a business trip. How do you act? What decisions do you make? These three young men are more than ready to stand up for what they believe and even die for that belief when it comes to God. One of those things I want to point out that I didn't hit on last week is that I believe that either many of us have been taught wrong or on our own we've come to, to believe wrong. I mean, these young men, they're willing to die for what they believed in. And they said, either God will save us here now or we'll go to heaven with him or we'll be with him. Either way, we're good. It's just the way it is but we're not going to bow down to this idol. But many of us come to believe that God owes us. Like, man, God's lucky he picked me for the team. I mean, I'm pretty good at dodgeball. I can throw that ball pretty hard, you know? He's lucky. You know, we kind of have that attitude toward toward God that he's obligated by his word to do certain things for us if i serve or if i give money or whatever i do then god will do certain things for me and i can even claim those things if i confront the boss and surely god will make sure i'm not fired this is not the god we serve this morning we were talking about keith green i don't know if many of you know that uh, story keith green um, his songs were just, uh, you know, he's kind of like, we were talking, he's kind of like the David Crowder for back then in the late 70s, early 80s. His music was, was just so convicting. And, and some people either loved him, some people really didn't like him, but, but his music was there. But what, what was interesting is when he died, he was loading up on the plane, and I think he had one of his kids with him or something like that. And he said, the, the pilot said, I think we have too much weight. And David Crowder said, don't worry, God will take care of us. Well, God took care of them in a crash. He went to heaven. There's certain laws of physics that God has set up that just because we're believers in God doesn't mean that God just takes those laws of physics and throws them out. Oh, well, he's a believer. I'll just make, his, I'll make sure his plane doesn't, you know. It, it doesn't necessarily work like that. Uh, you, I was talking to Brandon about it. It's like if I hold a stick of dynamite and I light it, just because I'm a believer, I can't say, well, God will save me. From this dynamite. No, it's going to explode and kill me, right? God doesn't owe us these things. Sometimes God will will allow us to be martyrs. So this doctrine that says, do these five things for God, and your life will be just peachy. (laughs) The problem with this teaching is, and this belief, is it can backfire on us. Sometimes God does bless us in certain ways when we do certain things for him, we give, we serve, we, we help those in need. He can give us good health. He can make us prosper uh, financially or spiritually or, or you know, with friends and, and co-workers. But we had to be careful. I think a prayer of is one of those things I was thinking about. It's a great prayer, but it was way misused in the, in the late 90s. And if you know what I'm talking about, it's a great, wonderful prayer in the Bible. It's called the prayer of Jabesh. There was even a book kind of written around it. Great stuff, but you can't put that into every situation like we were trying to do as Christians. What happens when God allows sickness? What happens when God allows poverty? What happens when God allows unemployment? Then it all comes back on a person or our well-meaning friends say, you know, something may be, you know, wrong with your relationship with God like they did with Job in the Bible. But in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we see this, that God allowed Stephen to be stoned for doing the right thing. God allowed Job to go through what Job went through because he lived the right way. God allowed Peter to be crucified upside down for doing the right thing. God allowed Isaiah to be placed on a rack and not to get too graphic, but literally torn apart after 55 years of preaching to Israel and Israel didn't listen to him. What a ministry is that, right? We'd all say that was a successful ministry, right? No, by today's standards, we would scoff at him a prophet of God that no one listened to and literally torn in half. It's important for us not to misinterpret what following Christ is because sometimes we follow Christ right and sometimes we don't follow Christ the right way. Then other times we'll follow Christ and we'll do the right thing and we'll go right into the fiery furnace. Not knowing if Christ will be there to meet us there in the fire or after we go to heaven you see my point? Not knowing. I know this isn't the happy Joel Olstein type of teaching. We say, you know, I want God to, uh, you know, who richly blesses me and, and always awards my good behavior and, and gives me what I want. And, and my question is, do you really want that God? Do you want a God that gives you everything that you want? I mean... Wouldn't we love a parent that gave us everything we wanted? We as Americans have become so spoiled. We complain about our health care system, and, uh, you know, it's broken. We get that. There's some good things about it. There's some bad things about it. But you ought to see the health care system in Kenya or Angola. You ought to see, you know, these things. Or how about Haiti? In Ghana, there's one doctor for every 26,000 people and we complain, I can't get my appointment for tomorrow. I mean, in Haiti, earthquakes, poverty, government, governmental takeovers, assassins. It's no wonder we're here in America, we're so spoiled. It's no wonder we move toward these health and wealth kind of doctrines. And for Americans, it works out a lot of times. You know what I'm saying? Follow certain principles and you will prosper usually. Invest in the stock market. Usually, your money's going to go. I mean, there's certain things that we follow, and we, you know, we fall into these thought patterns. But what happens when a day comes when Nebuchadnezzar shows up and shoves you into the fiery furnace? Hmm. And we must go into it with, I don't know what'll happen. So Nebuchadnezzar looks into the fire. And he sees these four guys down there, and you know, and they come out of the fire, no damage, not even smelling like smoke. What an amazing experience this had to be for, the, for those three guys, but also for, for Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, once again, he praises the God of these three guys. He praises the God of Daniel, but he still doesn't understand. It's like he takes this God, and if you read just chapter 3, and at the end you, you would swear that Nebuchadnezzar is now a believer in the one true God. All he's doing is adding him to the list of his other gods that he believes in. That's what he's been doing. So now we get to chapter 4. Now, last week we, we talked. We didn't know how much time was between chapter 2 and chapter 3. This time we do, know what, uh, uh, we do know how long because between chapter 3 and chapter 4, it's about 30 years. Now, next week we're going to talk about this, uh, this thing happens, and they even think they know the day that it happened. If you can imagine that. So next week, I'll entice you to, to be here for that. But it's been 30 years, and Daniel's now around 50 years of age. He has worked for the king for over 30 years. Now, where were you 30 years ago? Yeah, think about that for a second. How things have changed in the last 30 years, huh? You know, some of us would be like, yeah, for, for the better, Some of us would be like, yeah, follow my plan. Some of us would be like, I'm not quite sure. God has got me through here, but I'm here. I mean, that's a long time. 30 years has gone by. And this is the only chapter in the Bible that's written by a Gentile king. This is his personal testimony. Starts out, King Nebuchadnezzar. To the peoples, nations, and every man of every language who live in all the world, may you greatly or may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about all the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. You see the focus? For me. How great are his signs. How mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Again, the focus is on me, not on God. Try to, you know, imagine a modern president doing this today in America, declaring that God has done great things, even after all he did. all the times God has proved himself to Nebuchadnezzar, and he rejected God or put him in this little box with other gods, so I can put him on my shelf. But God never gave up on him. This is what's the miracle here. You have anybody in your life that you've given up on or you're about to give up on? Who is the Nebuchadnezzar in your life? You're sitting there just going, oh, yeah. It's all about them, isn't it? It's all about them. And you're ready to give up. I mean, think about this: Nebuchadnezzar is the villain of the story, but when we get to heaven, guess what? You get to meet the guy because he becomes a believer in God. He's going to go through a lot to get there. There's going to be a lot of people in heaven where we would say, wow, I didn't expect to see you here. And they'll say, well, thanks. But they're still there. He goes on in verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous, I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, to me, or came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God. And the spirit of the holy gods is in him. You see how he's kind of mixing up all the gods and putting them into Daniel? I said in verse 9, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of holy gods is in you and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. This is a great thing. Think about the reputation that Daniel has after working for this man for so long. This is a type of reputation that a person would want. Those those type of people around them, right? Nebuchadnezzar knew who to call. He knew who to, to talk to. The chief of the Magi, Daniel. I know you have God in you, and I know you are different. You see, what's interesting is we're different than the world, or we should be. It's evident to me every day. I'm different than other people out there in the world. You are different than other people out in the world. When the rubber meets the road, who are they going to call on? Most likely you, because there's a lot of other flighty people out there. We need to be different and this reputation does not come easily. This is why it should be about God's glory, not our glory, to build a reputation for God. He goes on in verse ten. These are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a, a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top, you know, touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful. Its fruit abundant. And on it was food for all. Under it, the beast of the field found shelter. And the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves, and scatter its fruit. Let the enemies flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. Let, it, let him be drenched with the, drew of, uh, the dew of heaven, and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth." Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let it be given to the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. Verse 17, the decision is announced by the messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. And he's thinking, I can't make any sense out of it. I'm stumped. Okay, stumped, stumped. Okay. Oh, man. Verse 18, now Nebuchadnezzar, or Belteshazzar, tell me what it means. For none of the wise men of my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can because the spirit of the holy of God is in you. Then Daniel was greatly perplexed for a time and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, my lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. Daniel's thinking in his head, I have to tell him what this means and I don't want to. He sees trouble ahead. He fears his boss. Verse 20. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, and having uh, nesting places in the branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. And again, remember the king had the other dream with the gold head, and he's all like, yeah, that's me. He's thinking, yeah, that's me. Yeah, you, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown up uh, until it reaches the sky. Your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. Man, Daniel's laying it on thick here, isn't he? Maybe I can encourage him before I knock him down, you know? You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying... Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with dew of the heaven, or the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass him by. This is an interpretation, O King, and this is the decree of the Most High has issued against my lord the king. You will be driven away from the people and will live with the wild animals. Wow. Now, who's going to drive him away? The messenger or angels? Those doing the will of God. And it goes on, it goes, you will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the drew of heaven. So he becomes a vegetarian, okay? Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes, now, this is a very interesting concept for us. Yes, angels are our guardians, and when we get to heaven, they will serve us, but they also do the will of God. God says, go do this and the angels, go and do it. And here the will of God goes against Nebuchadnezzar. So, they watch the, so these angels will watch over him and his kingdom for seven years to make sure he is not hurt at the same time while he's disciplined for these seven years. Did you catch the, the roots are still going to be in the ground? His kingdom will survive, and they're going to watch over him. Verse 26. The command to leave the stump of the tree and its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. That's a great phrase there. Acknowledge that heaven rules. That's something that we all should have, you know, written down somewhere. Because every day we need to acknowledge that heaven rules, not Alan, not you, heaven. Verse 27, therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It's interesting that Nebuchadnezzar's punishment has something to do with the way he's treating the poor and the oppressed. It may be, then your prosperity will continue. Maybe by your actions, Daniel's saying. He's a drummer, I tell you. No, it's okay. He likes, yeah, every time he's ran, he's always went to lunch last week and he's sitting there doing the drums. So he's good. Daniel's saying, look, your actions, by your actions, if you choose to change your mind now and recognize God, maybe, just maybe, he'll change it up. But if you read what's about, you know, read ahead and know what's going to happen, Nebuchadnezzar is fixing to go on a field trip. Thank you, finally, somebody. Got that one, the stump, the field, okay. Vegetarian. It's not a field trip that you want to go on, okay? Think about this. God has put Nebuchadnezzar, uh, you know, uh, his palace, some of the most amazing guys, and and said, watch them. Watch Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Watch Daniel, watch how they act. See how I bless them. But as he watched them, he didn't learn. So in chapter four, he's gonna give them a 12-month warning. And he doesn't do anything for 12 months. This is how gracious God is. God gives us warning after warning after warning and says, this is what I'm going to do to you. Just read the word. You can tell. Warning. If you act like this, it's not going to end up good for you. And God waits and waits to see if we will change our ways. But this is one of those guys that has to learn the hard way. You know, you ever had a friend or or a child or something just had to learn the hard way? You know, they had too much pride in themselves? I mean, this guy has no problem with self-esteem whatsoever. You know what I'm saying? Verse 28 goes on and says, All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar 12 months later as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace in Babylon. He said, Is not this... The great Babylon that I have built as a, as, as a royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty. Wow, he's feeling full of himself, right? He's talking about his favorite topic himself. And Babylon, I mean, don't get me wrong, it was amazing. They had, you know, miles of walls around the city. It was so wide, they had chariot races up on top. Now, if you look at a modern rendition, they, they have towers like every like 50 feet, okay? And they put the towers right on the, you know, the middle of the wall. Well, that's not, they had chariot races up on top, okay? We have written documentation, so I don't know if they had little, you know, arches where they would go through them, or if the towers were built behind it or in front of it, I don't know, but, but if you look at a rendition, it's a little different, but they would have chariot races with a breakdown lane in case one of them wrecked or got a flat, you know? They were so Beautiful. And some of those things are still standing today, and they would make these walls cobalt blue. And here's one of the, the modern, they've rebuilt some of it. Now, when we say rebuilt, think of um, and uh, name went, Saddam Hussein. I was going to say the name went right out of my head, but I found it somewhere back there. But uh, Saddam Hussein rebuilt a lot of the stuff, and he actually put his palace near this area. But I mean, just cobalt blue walls, just everywhere, solid gold lions for decorations. They'd have jewels encrusted. Uh, you know, their eyes would be jewels, and and the palace had central air and heat. If you can think about that, basically, it was water came through, and it would cool the air as it's flowing through. They had plumbing in the palace. We say, well, I have that in my house. Yeah, this was 600 BC. It was absolutely amazing back then. Nebuchadnezzar married a, a wife who was from the mountains. And, and here's a couple of more pictures of, of what it looks like modern day and stuff. And they've reconstructed some of it, they dug out some of it. It's amazing if you want to take some time to go through online. But his wife was from the mountains, so to keep her happy, he built the Hanging Gardens. And you've heard about the Hanging Gardens, one of the wonders of the ancient world. And the, had a, a huge ziggurat that was 40 stories high. Think about that. I mean, Tulare, we have some tall buildings. <laughs> okay, we have a four-story building that's sort of built. We will get there. Pray for the hospital. that We can get it done. You know what I'm saying? Here's another, you know, another picture there. But 40 story highs, and there was multiple buildings like this, just so his wife could walk around. And every 10 steps, there were plants, plants from all over the world. Wild animals from from the world also. Uh, they had uh, the animals with zookeepers for each animal. It was an amazing place. No wonder this guy had a big ego. So one evening, he's out on the roof talking to himself, saying, I'm pretty amazing, aren't I? I guess his wife probably was tired of it and walked away, you know. Look at this place, verse 31. The words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from the people and will live like the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from his people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle eagle, and his nails like the claws of birds. I mean, pretty gruesome transformation. Verse uh, 34, at at the end of this time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, remember, Nebuchadnezzar's the one writing this down. he is able to humble. Finally, Nebuchadnezzar becomes a follower of the one true God. His final idol fell, as we kind of talked about idols last week, and we'll talk about them here uh, soon again, but his favorite idol was himself. Look at all the temples within the walled city. This is kind of a a drawing of everything. And next week, the, the river flowing through um, is a major thing. This is not a little area. This is a huge area, okay? He had so many different palaces in there. I want to say there was, I mean, uh, uh, when I say palaces, I don't mean palaces, uh, different worship centers for different gods in there. I want to say it was over 40 different uh, places in there to worship different idols. You know, over the next couple of weeks, we'll talk about primary idols and secondary idols. We kind of touched on that last week, but a primary idol is a a painting or a statue or or a man-made object, and we fall down and we worship it. It could be also a volcano or a tree, well, that was ancient times, right? Well, not really. Go over to Hawaii. Right now, they're talking about Pele because it's you know bubbling lava at the top, and you know we we love the Big Island. We go over there often, and you know, and you're not supposed to bring a, a rock home because you know the Brady Bunch episode tells you you're not supposed to. But I got rocks at home because they're guess what? They're not gods. The rock. But they'll worship that god. They'll talk about that god. We'll talk about that more a little bit later. But today I want to talk about secondary idolatry. Secondary idolatry is about our pride. Those who set themselves up and say, I built this. I deserve this. I accomplished this. Therefore, I am awesome. Don't you think so? I've truly made myself into something special here. See, the tough thing for Nebuchadnezzar was that in order to remove the idol from his life, he had to remove Nebuchadnezzar from his life as king. This is exactly what God did for seven long years. The man went crazy. And not only that, he did it in public. I mean, for a politician to go crazy in public. I mean, we've seen that every now and then, right? It's hard to come back from it sometimes. If my idol is an object, it's one thing. But if my idol's myself, God just doesn't break that idol, as in, like, you know, we can just throw down a pot clay, we can destroy something that's made into an idol. But when it's you, you know, money, God can take away money. Whatever it is, God can take it away. But if the idol is you, if it's me, then what is God going to do? So let me ask you a personal question. Has your idol ever been you? Is it possible right now that 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 idol is you? I don't know. Although many of us have been successful in life, and at one time or another, we've been rewarded for that, and we kind of get full of ourselves, right? Right? I've done it. Other people have done it. Maybe it's how well you raise your children. Or maybe it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, well, I just finished my my long fast that I've been doing for the Lord. Or I got up early today so I could do my Bible study because I'm so spiritual. So let's ask some honest questions that relate to Nebuchadnezzar but also relates to us. And if you're writing some notes, here you go. Nebuchadnezzar builds Babylon, right? So, what have I built? Some of us could say maybe a company or a family or a reputation, but it's about I and not necessarily about God. Nebuchadnezzar, he conquers the Assyrians, the Egyptians, the coalition there. What have I conquered? What have you conquered? Nebuchadnezzar becomes the most powerful man on the planet. How much power do you have? Nebuchadnezzar comes in contact with a very powerful God, the one and only true God, and is blessed. And then he takes credit for for God's work. When have I taken credit for God's work? When have you taken credit for God's work? Nebuchadnezzar only, you know, only will give God the glory when he felt like it. When do I give God the glory? When do you give God the glory? Until the end of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar never gives God all the glory. So think of it this way. For 35, 30, 35 years, you know, since Daniel has been around... Nebuchadnezzar never gave God all the glory for 35 years. So the question is, do I reserve some of the glory for myself? Do you reserve some of the glory for yourself? Nebuchadnezzar reserves the right to worship other gods. Do you keep other gods around and reserve that right to worship those? Nebuchadnezzar challenges God to defy him. In what ways do I defy Him? What ways do I challenge God? Nebuchadnezzar ignores warning after warning after warning. What warning have I ignored, or you have ignored? So Nebuchadnezzar has to learn the hard way. So we have to ask our question, you know, ourselves a question: Do I have to learn the hard way? Nebuchadnezzar is extremely prideful. Am I prideful? Are you prideful? You know, James 4 6 says that God resists the proud. So if God is resisting me in any way because I'm prideful, is that why this particular thing hasn't really been working out? Because I've been pushing God so hard on this? It's not really coming together? Is it possible the problem is pride? You know, Nebuchadnezzar's story is, is for every person who has potential. Maybe you're a leader and you have great ideas. You're talented. Nebuchadnezzar's story is for whoever is successful in any part of their life. It is a very important story because it's not like God doesn't want us to be successful. God wants us to be successful for his glory. He wants us to remember to who to give the credit and the glory to. He wants us to be successful. If he didn't want that, then why would Daniel's story be here in the Bible? It's a story of spiritual and economic and political success. Daniel is the man, but in chapter 4, he is standing there going, I have failed to teach you over the last 30 years, and now you're going to have to go into a field and eat grass for seven years, and I'm sad about that. I will hold things together while you walk around on all fours and eat when your mind's all crazy. So I tell my youngest one, in la-la land. That's what he does when he gets to class. He just goes in la-la land. Everyone will be going, what happened? What's going to happen to the kingdom? Well, What about this? What about that? You know, all those things would rise up. We live in Babylon as Americans, and we have taught to have pride, right? I mean, I'm from Texas. You pull yourself up with bootstraps. You know what I'm saying? You get out there, and you just do it. We've been taught to make things sound better than they are, to constantly tell people what we have achieved, and the Bible tells us to do the opposite. Humble ourselves so that we lift him up. See, only God knows how many accolades you can handle before you go over the edge. Your company doesn't know this. They'll keep promoting you if you succeed, right? When this happens we start believing the press releases about ourselves wanting everyone to tell us how awesome we really are. You know, even with children we try to build their self-esteem and tell them how great they are. You know, I mean, I think one of the biggest faults that we have for telling children is you can be anything you want to be. Well, in one sense I understand that. And we want to encourage our children. Don't get me wrong, okay? We want to build them up. But at the same time, how many presidents have we had? 46. You can't always be anything you want to be. Let's make sure that when we're building them up, we're, we're not flattering them with untruths. Let's give them some truth in the middle of all that. It's great that your little kid thinks he's good at everything. I mean, you're not going to tell a one-year-old, man, you really stink at baseball. You can't throw that thing. <laughs> you know? I mean, we don't need to say, oh, you're really awful at it, but to say, hey, let's find something you're really good at as they start to get older. I think the self-esteem movement's gotten out of hand. I'm probably going off on tangents, but, you know. You don't say to a four-year-old, when they're coloring something in class, you don't go, you call that coloring? You, You just, you know. But we want to build them up. We want to build them up to handle failure in life. Because that's where the rubber meets the road. When you fail at something, what do you do? Do you still give God glory? Succeeding, in in many ways, is easy. That's the easier part. But the hard part about succeeding is giving God the glory. The hard part about failure is figuring out what do I do now? What do I truly believe Let's trust God to build our our self-esteem. Let's trust God to give the rewards out when he wants to. You know, for some reason, we get jealous. Look at them. They have the house. They have a car. They go on vacation. Well, two things in that. One, you don't know where they came from. You don't know what they went through to get to that point. I mean, I have a beautiful house, but I didn't have that beautiful house until later in life. I could tell you stories about places that we did live, could be that God is blessing someone for for some reason at this point in their life, and God is giving them something so let's be careful in the jealousy because if we start you know if we start to toot our own horn, it just ends up backfiring doesn't it let's do our job so well that who notices God because it's about god 's glory it's not about our glory it's not about us walking around going i'm so good." Let me pat myself on my back. Let's play to one audience, an audience of one, and that is God himself. And we're able to do that because of what Jesus did on the cross for us. That's why we have this ability to get to God. That's why we can play to this audience of one. That's why we don't go around going, I am so great. Look at everything I've done. We can say, man, to God be the glory. Look at how God has blessed us. Look at how God is blessing them. Look at what God has done. And I'm going to trust that God is going to do great things for people because he loves us. That's the self-esteem. That's the foundation. He loves us. Well, let's stand and pray as the worship team comes. and. Finishes us up for the day. Lord, I know there's times in our lives, in my life, where we've taken your glory. We've said, look at what I've done. I thank you for your, for your grace that you just don't squish us like little bugs for taking that glory. I pray that you gently teach us how to give you the glory. That when we are successful, we turn around and we point to you. That we can, you know, be an example to this world that needs great examples of grace and mercy and justice and love and kindness and goodness. All those things that you are, Jesus, may may those be the forefront of our lives. And may our personalities take the back seat. For it's your glory, Lord. It's your glory through Jesus Christ. Now, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you, that it reflects His glory in your day to day life. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.